Hi everyone. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I'm the host of Danger on Delmarva, as well as Mystifyingly Missing. Now this case I'm covering today will actually fall into both categories, so it will be appearing on both of the podcasts. I will make sure that in the description I have links to everything, including the podcast and the uploads to YouTube. I also will have all of the sources that I used um, listed in the description as well. Now, this is the second part of a crime or the study of a crime that I went over the details of in the first episode. If you did not listen to the first episode, then you will definitely want to go back and at least get the idea of what occurred. Um, I do want to say, though, that the previous episode regarding this crime, it is a very sensitive topic, and I even had a hard time covering it and trying to make sure that you know, I treated the victim and her family and everyone else involved um, with as much dignity as possible as you know, this is something that a totally despicable human being did and victimized actually a number of different people. So again, the previous episode will detail the events of a crime. Um, just to give a very brief summary, it was the kidnapping, assault, and murder of 11-year-old Sarah Foxwell. And the offender's name was Thomas Legs Jr., I'm going to refer to his actual name as little as possible because I don't want him to get all of the attention. Even though I did go through all of his um, contacts with the police, that was necessary to understand the judicial system and what parts may have failed, not only Sarah, but every other person that he victimized after his first offense. So this episode itself will be covering basically the legacy and you know, what happened after the crime and the plea that he took, which he did plea to avoid the death penalty. So this will also be a long episode. The previous one was long as well. Um, but just to let you know, I'm probably looking at at least 45 minutes to an hour on this one. And just as a quick disclaimer, though, you know, I did take all of this information from publicly available sources. Frankly, a lot of this information came from the Baltimore Sun over a few different articles. So, of course, you know, as I said, everything will be linked in the description. And there's a lot of overall source material that I used. So even though a lot of it may be coming from the Baltimore Sun, there are other pieces of information I may have gathered from different articles. So with that, I just want to go ahead and get into the, um, the legislation and everything that occurred afterwards. Um, so just jumping right in, I did find some stats from 2010. Um, that was just after Sarah's death. In Maryland, the probation or parole officers supervise over 71,000 men and women. And again, this was 2010. Of these, there were 2,300 sexual offenders throughout the state. And they also do monitor about 1,000 offenders 
who've been sentenced, but they're not actually, the term they used was released to supervision. So they're kind of in a limbo area. Um, the probation and parole board um, and the officers that really do the supervision, you know, they have a lot to do with monitoring these specific offenders. Um, what the state of Maryland wanted to try to do was bring the number of officers to offender ratio to 30 to one. That would allow a better caseload management instead of you know, having a huge number. 30 is high enough depending on what restrictions are set during um, parole, but you know the intent was to try to have it 30 to one. Now, the legislation that was introduced to try to you know, monitor the offenders more, to try to get a better heads up in case they're starting to go down the path again where they might offend, the officers who would supervise this specific group um, would, in, would get a lot more training. Now, when an offender would first be released, they would release, be released over the highest level of supervision, and that means they would need to contact their um, probation officer daily. Um, there would be face-to-face -face meetings at least once a week, and there would be referrals to you know, different types of agencies, and that was based on the individual as far as their risk assessment. And at least monthly, they would take a look and make sure they were compliant with all of the terms of their supervision and also check the registry to make sure that they're on there properly. Now, some of the tools that Maryland would use to um, better monitor these offenders were polygraph, I'm sorry, polygraph exams. Um, computer monitoring, which would make sure that they're not accessing inappropriate or illegal material, electronic tracking, which would be around-the-clock GPS tracking, as well as possible curfews based on where they lived, and alerts would be made if the offender went outside that range. Now, this is part of um, legislation called Comet, and what Comet stood for was Collaborative Offender Management Enforcement Treatment Program, of course, without the P at the end there. So along those lines, too, I was able to find an example of a letter that was sent to all the people um, who were under Comet. So these would be all um, sex offenders that were in the Comet program. And this actually focused on Halloween, so it's just kind of coincidental that, you know, I found that during the month where we have Halloween. But a letter was sent to all of the offenders, and just to kind of summarize, it was saying, this is a night that children will be out. Parents in the area will have concerns about you, so you need to make sure that you're following our protocol protocols to show that you are sincere in trying to rebuild your life. And so they did place restrictions on the offenders and they had to follow them. There would actually be spot checks of, you know, officers coming to the door to make sure that all of the rules were being followed. 
And the steps that they took were, at least in the year that this letter was sent out, was they had to remain in their home on Halloween from 6 p.m. until the next morning. They could not give out any candy. That means they kept the outside light off and had a no candy sign on the door. That they would not answer the door even if a trick-or-treater showed up. And that they were not to participate in any events that were um, because of Halloween. So like a Halloween party or a community event that might be happening because of Halloween. And like I said, there would be officers going around to make sure that you know, they were complying with all of this. Now, within the letter, okay, I just highlighted one line, and it says, it is not as apparent to them, with them me, meaning the neighbors or parents in the area, so it's not as apparent to them as it is to us that most of you are genuinely engaged in the difficult task of rebuilding your lives. So a lot of this letter basically did just keep repeating the fact that it was very, very difficult for the offender at this time because you know they're trying to transition back into society. Society knows that they're on the sex offender registry. They're having a hard time finding a job or even a place to live. So this letter was very, very, I don't think the word coddling is the exact word, but it's the closest one I can come up with. It was really holding the hand of the offender saying, you know, we know you're going through a tough time. This must be difficult for you. Um, but these are some steps that you can take to show your community that you're trying to change. I don't know, just reading through the letter, it really did sound like like the offender was the one who had you know, been the victim. I mean, it really did seem, at least to me, you know, I can say this is my opinion, that it was kind of pandering to the offender. But it could have been done to try to make the offender feel better about themselves, which I can understand. It's just looking at it from the viewpoint of you know, knowing what some of these offenders may have done you know, it almost seems like you know, they're having their hand held. So that's, again, just my opinion in regards to that. Um, now, I want to take a look at some percentages because some of this will, um, you know, go into one of the other articles that I read. But we want to emphasize that a lot of times when it comes to um, kidnapping, when it comes to assault, especially with children, it's not necessarily the strangers that can be the most danger for the child. Um, I'm sure we've all heard of the term stranger danger and, you know, make sure you stay away from strangers and you don't take anything from them. But approximately 93% of victims know their attackers and a little over 34% were family members. Only 7% then were strangers to the victim. Now, these percentages that I did find, some of them are mixed up within the term, you know, which years the numbers are from, but most look like they come from about 2004, um, which, you know, overall I found not only in this case, but in other things I've studied, it sometimes takes, for some reason, a lot of time to gather some of these numbers. So by the time that you're looking at them, your years passed, and you may have already passed that learning curve 
to you know, try to get everything back on track. Um, and again, that's more than just this case. It just seems to be you know, overall. Now, the typical child sex offender assaults an average of 117 children, and most of them do not report. You know, they don't report the offense. So what scares me about this, too, is even if a sex offender is released back into society, there could be more, you know, more children that, that they attack or they assault, that they touch. Um, and for going back to that previous letter where it was saying many of you are trying to genuinely, you know, like restart their lives, there may be. I'm certain there are some who are trying to change. But for everyone that's trying to change, it just seems like there's many, many more who are not trying to change at all. Now, over a 25-year period, a child sex offender had a higher rate of reoffense than those of adult sexual assault. Um, it's 52% versus 39%. Um, so again, not all of them are even reported, so those numbers could actually be higher. 15% um, of sexual assault victims are under the age of 12, and nearly 30% of the child victims were between the ages of 4 and 7. And so looking at her case, there is so much that we can learn and actually learn to change. Um, you know, I am a believer in second chances. Truly, I am. Um, for many people in prison, you know, they could be good people overall, but just made a mistake. And as long as the offense was not violent or caused long-term um, injury or you know any other type of impact to you know someone else, I think that we should recognize that the prison should focus on rehabilitation for you know, many of the prisoners, but unfortunately it does not. So what we end up is with is a number of repeat offenders. So we need to take a look at trying to rehabilitate those who truly can be rehabilitated, but then also recognize that there are certain categories where that seems to be you know, a very low number of people who can actually be rehabilitated. And sex offenders are one of those groups of people, unfortunately. Um, now, a prosecuting attorney um, did say, and that was the prosecuting attorney, David Ruark, in Sarah's, Sarah's case, that many sex offenders are masters of manipulation. They dress well, they're articulate, and the only witness is a minor. There are different kinds of cases and should be handled differently. So this is a recognition from the um, from the attorney, the prosecuting attorney who handled Sarah's case, that these offenders have to be handled differently. You know, if you look at someone who possibly stole out of desperation, they needed the money. Um, we can try to work with a rehabilitation for things like that, but not necessarily for something like this. Usually an offender will not stop. So while the numbers are staggering, it just seems like they keep going up. Um, steps have been taken to try to reduce the risk of 
reoffense once the offender gets back into society. But even with the greatest of intentions and the best of ideas, to actually incorporate the ideas of Comet into the real world are easier said than done. There are lines between protecting society and protecting an individual's civil and constitutional rights, including those who have been convicted of a crime. Now, while I was reviewing um, this particular um, legislation called Comet, there was a lot of material for this case on the Baltimore Sun, you know, again. And I did come across this one article that it was kind of an opinion piece. And so what I did is I will be repeating most of the article or many key points of the article verbatim. So I'm going to take each section and just kind of look at that um, to see it from, say, the other perspective. And I want everybody to keep an open mind on this because it can be difficult because the letter itself actually lends a lot of support for the offender, but it's actually a good tool for you know, those who are looking at um, strengthening the monitoring, strengthening the um, sentencing, everything involved with you know, how an offender is supervised. Now, um, starting with the first paragraph or section that I read, it said, although many are duplicative, the effect of even a small number of these, and that's regarding the legislation rules, should they become law, would be utterly devastating to the many, many former offenders and their families living and trying to be productive citizens in our state. Okay, um, you know, I, looking at that, I really just have to say that when a person infringes on another person's rights on you know, their personal self, their being, and harms them, assaults them, it leaves an indelible mark on that person's life. So the offender needs to expect some repercussions. Now, as for the offender's families, in most cases, you know, except for those that tend to cover for the offender or do things to aid them, you know, in most cases, I do feel bad for their families because, you know, their loved one is going to prison. And even if the family, you know, is rejecting that person because of what they did and they know that their loved one was in the wrong, that can lead to potential loss of income. If they have children and a family that they're trying to raise, you know, people lose a brother, son, father, aunt, sister, just, you know, so many different roles that an individual can play, but the victims of their crimes and their families have to suffer forever as well. So while, you know, my heart does go out to the families who sincerely, you know, are affected by what the offender does, but, you know, that's the choice that the offender made. The offender knows that if they're caught, it's going to affect other people, not just the victim. So, to this argument, there's, to me, and I'm just saying again, this is my opinion, it doesn't really hold water. It really doesn't. Um, now, the next thing was many former offenders who are now required to register would find themselves on the list and make no mistake, public sex offender registration is a terrible burden that renders registrants virtually unemployable destroys families, and does at least as much to threaten public safety as it does to promote it. So, okay, 
um, what stuck out to me was the phrase terrible burden. Now, again, it yes, it may be a burden, but it's a choice that they made. The, the offender did it. They knew that there was the possibility if they did a certain act that they would have to go on the, a sex offender registry. So again, I do hope that many prisons do look at an offender's time there as a time to rehabilitate them, to lend counseling, and do all of this to try to prevent, you know, an offender from repeating. But, you know, again, rehabilitation is not happening for everyone, and the public needs to be made aware of potential dangers whenever possible. I mean, we have signs up for dangers for everything, you know, that a floor is wet, that it's dangerous to touch an electric fence. I mean, just anything that you can think of where there's a potential danger, there's a sign up. So why is this different when this person did at one time commit a crime? That means they are at a higher risk to do so again. So next, um, more importantly, none of the proposed changes to the sex offender laws currently in place would effectively address what happened to Sarah or prevent similar tragedies from happening to other children. Well, you know, looking at Sarah's case, we can't go back and change things. We can, though, look at what the laws and regulations were at that time to see how it could have better served not only Sarah, but everyone in her family, and then also everyone in the community who is in a similar situation. Um, now, the monitoring you know, whether it be the GPS or the computer monitoring, it gives law enforcement information to try to get in front of a situation from happening. If they see that someone is looking at questionable things, if they see that someone is spending a lot of time in a park when they should not be, it gives law enforcement that step up on the person. Now, the next argument that is being made in this article is about the workload for those who do the supervision. So next, you know, the questions posed were, was Sarah's killer being adequately supervised? Were those charged with his supervision able to devote appropriate time and resources to his case? Or were they spending their time monitoring those who pose little or no threat? So um, my thoughts to that are that legislation was called for to step up their approach um, by releasing everyone at a high risk level. But once someone does actually start to meet all of the requirements, they you know, are doing everything they're supposed to, they have successful meetings with their supervisor, then they can be stepped down so that you know, there's not as much time spent on that one individual. So you know, it's not as though every person stays at that highest risk for the rest of their lives. It all depends on what they're doing as far as staying compliant. Um, next, the writer says, Sarah's family has said they knew about his history. That knowledge didn't keep Sarah safe. Perhaps due diligence both by those charged with protecting Sarah and those who were supposed to be supervising her killer may have prevented her death. Now, this particular paragraph kind of floored me. I mean... Like I said, I'm trying to keep an open mind because there are some offenders out there who are truly trying to change. But this 
almost seems like it's blaming others for what Sarah's killer did. It's you know saying that Sarah's family, they knew about his history. Okay, I didn't find many articles or even any that I can recall that specifically mentioned when they knew about it, whether or not they knew before Amy started dating him or how far into the relationship. Was that the reason that she stopped seeing him because of this? We don't know, but she did stop seeing him. And, you know, part of the Comet legislation was trying to bring the caseload down for probation officers. And that would, you know, in my opinion, be really wonderful, you know, so that every person gets the attention they deserve, whether it's good or bad. Um, But, you know, unfortunately, there are just so many criminals out there, whether it's, you know, this particular type of offender or, you know, other violent crimes, there's a lot of people out there. And looking at this particular paragraph where it's trying to put the the onus of blame on the family and on the probation and parole system, okay, you know, it yes, there were judicial problems. There were things that were not addressed. He did not serve a lot of time at all for everything that he did. But at the same time, He's the one who did it. At some point, that has to be said and addressed that the individual made that choice. Now, this man had a history of um, repeat offenses against children, and I am going back to the, um, the article now. So any reasonable person would conclude that such a history would make him high risk to reoffend, unlike the overwhelming majority of registered sex offenders. That is the fallacy of registration laws. Registration does not, never has, and never will have anything at all to do with reducing risk of reoffending. Yet our response to her death, meaning Sarah's, is more registration. In fact, registration of so many very low-risk offenders, those who are first-time, nonviolent, non-contact offenders, for example, Romeo and Juliet offenders, or those whose offenses were many years ago and you have not reoffended, renders the registry far less useful as a tool for parents and law enforcement. Okay, it does go on for a little bit longer, but okay. I know that there are lower risk offenders and these offenders, um, going back many, many years, I heard of a teenager who was quite frankly acting very childishly, um, not appropriate at all, but he was over 18, but still a teenager. And twice he mooned someone in full view of a lot of people, a lot. And that included children who saw things that they should not have. That put him on the registry. Now, again, this is going back years and years when it first started. So that person was just being immature and childish, but they're on the registry. I also, um, you know, when I was looking at offenders in the area where my aunt and uncle lived, you know, um, they were going to be watching my children. I came across one who lived very close. And at first I was shocked until I read what um, the charge was. And this is what I think they mean by Romeo and Juliet offenders. These are couples who may have, say, been in high school together, 
but they're a couple of years apart. And just based on the state law, it falls into the category of statutory um, offenses. So illegally, was it wrong? Yes. You know, a lot of people do look at some of the laws, especially as they vary by state. So it can be very confusing. What was illegal in one state may not be illegal in another. But that's just some of the examples she's giving as low risk. But for every low risk like that, there's a higher risk. And we can just see with those numbers, um, you know, one of the numbers I read earlier was over the 25-year period that was studied that, you know, child, child offenders, I will say, um, again, trying to watch some of the wording, um, but they had a higher rate of reoffense at 52% versus those who assaulted the adults. Now, I think that 52% as a repeat offender is pretty high. And just looking at the fact that some, you know, one of the other numbers that some of the offenders may assault, you know, 117 people on average, that still means that with that 52%, there are probably ones that are not being reported. And the next argument she makes is it will make it harder for former offenders who pose little or no risk to reintegrate into society expose them and their families to serious risk of harm at the hands of those who misuse registry information to harass, threaten, and even kill registrants and cost the state money that would be far better spent on closer supervision of the truly predatory. The Maryland legislature needs to think again before it responds to this senseless tragedy with knee-jerk feel-good laws that would not have saved Sarah and will not protect other children from a similar, similar fate. Okay, again, kind of shocked by some of the things in this, um, in this article. Um, the fact that she, you know, said that, um, you know, the former offenders pose little or no risk to reintegrate. Many of them do, though. So while, yes, you have some who don't, many do. Now, as far as exposing them and their family to risk of people who misuse the registry, yes, I have heard of cases where people just pretty much go on the registry and use it to verbally attack, um, cyber attack, just whatever they can do to make that person's life miserable and their family's life miserable. And that should not be done. You know, two wrongs don't make a right in that case because many times in cases where they're harassed, the person who is the vigilante doesn't necessarily look at the exact details. And it does happen to be one such as the teenager mooning someone when he was just over 18. You know, does that really deserve him to be harassed? No, but we need to follow the law. So the registry should not be used as a means of acting as a vigilante. But she used the term or used the words, it would be far better spent on closer supervision of the truly predatory. I personally see those offenders who fall into the category we're discussing as truly predatory. So I'm not sure really what she means there, because that is something that these offenders are. They are predatory. And, 
you know, even with some of these laws enacted, it may not have helped immediately for Sarah, but you don't know. What we do know is if he had still been in jail because of his other offenses, then, you know, then it definitely would not have happened. Now, while reading this article, I really had to try to keep my emotions in check. Um, you know, usually what I do is I review information and then, of course, I try to type up either a general outline or some type of script if there's a lot of detail. Um, but I really had to take a step back and I probably retyped this section three times because, you know, I, I really was upset by reading some of that. Now, I had previously discussed about an incident that thankfully someone walked into the building at the time where I was in a situation where something could have happened to me. So I did have that emotion. You know, I was upset. This, the person involved in my case was a repeat offender. And so to see some of the responses in this article, you know, saying that time needs to be spent on those who are truly predatory. Well, you know what? There needs to be a determination of who is truly predatory. That's why they have the supervision. They look at it. They look at the individual. They go through the steps. If they meet all the requirements and it does not seem like they're at a high risk, they step down on their supervision. So at first coming out of jail or prison, yes, there is a lot of supervision that takes time and money. But, you know, if it saves even one child, it's well worth it. And given law enforcement that extra um, set of guidelines that they can use, the extra training and the extra resources could save lives. And, you know, again, it does seem to almost state that you know, the offender does not play as big a role in the offense as those around him does. And, you know, it's the offender has to take responsibility at some point. So after, you know, the events of Comet coming into play, there was a man, um, an offender who was in prison named David Bright. He actually sued over the monitoring and regulations of Comet. Um, now, he had agreed to follow these after his release. Um, the events for his case were actually taking place in 1977. He and two other men committed a very brutal assault. Um, now, like Thomas Legs, he actually did try to contact his victim after the attack. And this just adds to the pain and the turmoil that he and his two accomplices brought to her life. So it, it shows the hubris and the arrogance that, some people do have, and this, you know, adds to a profile that the really high-risk offenders, they want that control. Even after the survivor of their assault is, you know, trying to get things back on track, is doing what's best for him or her, he actually has the nerve to, to try to contact the person. So, he did actually end up violating his terms under Comet because what happened is he actually was originally sentenced to life in prison, but he was granted a new trial in 2013 on appeal. So 
you know, as with many cases, there was a plea deal that was struck um, saying that he would be released for the time served. Now, this was 2013. He was sentenced in 1977 or thereabouts. So he'd been in jail for a very long time. So he did agree to the supervision under Comet. Um, he did also, um, he did not, I'm sorry, have to go on the sex offender registry because that was not in place when he committed his crime. So in other words, you can't have a law be retroactive, meaning you know, the sex offender registry and regulation came into effect after he was in prison, so he could not be forced to go onto that registry. Now, in terms of Comet, that was something, though, that he actually did agree to. And, you know, it just seemed like this, this man, David Bright, he was convicted. He knew he did what, something that was extremely vile. And he, he just seemed to want to have everything handed to him afterwards that he didn't need to follow certain regulations, even though he had actually agreed to them as part of the plea deal. Um, I'm not going to relay everything that he did in the assault, but it was something where the harshest punishment available should have been enacted on him. So the fact that he had to follow Comet, I think, you know, he still comes out a winner, in my opinion, where he shouldn't have. You know, he still was released, even though, you know, it was a very, very brutal assault. But ultimately, he did not win that case um, because he was, um, you know, he sued about trying to get off of Comet. He had violated the terms, but again, in a show of leniency, once a judge determined that Comet rightfully could be applied to Mr. Bright, you know, <laughs> the judge didn't count the missed compliances against him. So when he did not do some of the things that he was supposed to do under Comet, the judge just kind of forgave them. So <sighs> leniency there. So that leads to my next point as far as um, the sex offender registry. It can be a great tool, but, you know, like this case, is it fully um, recognizing everybody who could be an offender um, you know, or anything like that? Um, it can create this sense of almost safety, you know, the, um, the registry, because we can look at it and say, okay, I know these are the houses where, you know, somebody lives that I need to be careful of. But it does not, you know, of course, keep track of anyone who's not been convicted. It does not keep track of those who got out or were released um, for a similar offense before the, um, the sex offender registry came into being. So, you know, actually, if they committed the crime before then, they would not have to be on the registry. And then there's, you know, just it's not all encompassing. So it can create a sense of we know where everybody is who could possibly offend, but in actuality, we don't. I still think it's a tool that we need. So the arguments that are against it, you know, no, it does not catch everybody, but it catches who we know is a potential risk. So definitely useful. So for the arguments against that, 
um, for everyone that's against it, there are some that you know are very, very powerful, powerful in support of having the registry. Now, um, some law enforcement has said, though, it's really just a way to track addresses, um, which I can see that point. But, you know, whereas offenders previously were just, say, giving their address saying that's where they live, with the GPS tracking enacted in Comet, you can kind of verify that. If someone says they're living at this apartment or at this house and their GPS is showing they're spending 13 hours a day at one certain location that's not work, that will tell someone, okay, maybe he's living in a place he's not supposed to. Maybe there's children around. That's why GPS tracking can be more helpful when it comes to terms of the registry. Um, you know, the law enforcement is not just looking at what the offender is telling them as far as where they live. They can actually track it. Now, um, some other issues that kind of go together, um, and this one is kind of difficult to both explain as well as to actually have to say this. Um, unfortunately, when accusations are made against um, an offender. If there's not physical evidence, it's very hard to get a conviction. So what that does is it really, you know, it really tells anybody who is a victim of someone that they have to go to law enforcement immediately. They have to, you know, get evidence while it's still there. So while a person's just gone through this trauma, they then have to you know, be able to say, okay, I need to get to the hospital. Um, I need to have evidence collected. I need to contact 911. But at that time, the person is scared. You know, they, they've been through something that they expected to never have to go through. And that can then cause an issue if the evidence is not collected immediately. You always can have a defense attorney who tries to argue that well, one of a number of different things, but, you know, some of the more common things that, you know, yes, the victim saw their client that night, but there were also other people around, just, you know, tons of different arguments a defense attorney could make. And so a lot of times these cases come down to he said, she said, and juries don't want to convict on that. That means sometimes people are pled down to lower charges. But when someone is pled down to a lower charge, what that says to the victim is, okay, you can come forward, you can report everything and go through, you know, having to give depositions and tell the story over and over again to try to get a conviction. And it all comes down to either a plea deal or in the case of Caitlin Alley, the conviction was actually overturned. Caitlin Alley did everything that she could do. She did everything right. There was a little bit of a delay before she did report it to the police, but, you know, she was very, very young, but he was actually convicted, but then it was overturned. He barely served any time, and with all of the instances that I went over in the first episode of what he did, he should not have been out of jail. So the fact that the offenders are not being adequately sentenced tells future victims, whether it's of that person or any other offender, it tells them that coming forward does not always pay dividends. 
And we need to change that because if not, it's this cycle that we'll keep going through. We'll, you know, have a case brought against someone, but, you know, based on not enough evidence or, you know, possibly conflicting witnesses, things like that, you're going to end up with either a plea or a non-conviction. And anyone seeing that or hearing about it, if they ever become a victim of an assault, they may be less prone to come forward because they think that there's no reason to, that it's not actually going to cause any significant sentencing to the offender because they've seen it so many times where it doesn't. Now, just a little peeve of mine, if you will, um, is you know, in some of the charges that I've gone over previously, there were some that were labeled as attempted just personally, and in some cases, you know, having it being attempted does not necessarily affect the sentence, or at least technically it shouldn't. But whenever the word attempted is used in front of the crime, it really makes me angry. The reason why is, you know, it kind of diminishes the crime. What it does is it kind of downplays it like, oh, they meant to do it, but they didn't. It almost, you know, it almost rewards the criminal that, you know, in one of the cases for this particular offender, someone woke up and saw him there. But one minute later, things could have been completely different. So something like that, it would be termed as an attempted, you know, whether it be assault, burglary, whatever it was. Whereas the intent was the same. And to me, to have a lesser sentence or to look at the sentencing guidelines differently just because it was not completed is a total, excuse me, I know this is my opinion, but it's a total slap in the face of anyone who's been a victim of an assault. Because whether or not the person who was the intended victim was able to fight back or able to stop the assault to look at what that offender was doing any differently, I think is an injustice because the intent was there and that offender you know, was not able for whatever reason to complete the action. So because someone was able to stop him the crime is looked at differently because it was only attempted. Now, again, this is just kind of my opinion. It's something that really bothers me because, you know, especially in terms of, say, attempted murder, okay, maybe someone was able to move quickly out of the, the path of a bullet. Maybe, you know, they were able to fight back um, and not, you know, be injured any further. But whatever the case, that person still intended to kill another, and I think that should be looked at exactly the same way as if, it, if the action had actually been completed because that was the full intent of the person. So to me, the word attempted just kind of downplays the seriousness of the offenses. But, you know, again, my opinion, and I'm very, very, I'll, I'll put it this way, I'm very passionate about that idea that attempted you know, should kind of be removed from the legal lexicon, you know, maybe, um, you know, have the words not completed afterwards or something like that. 
it just it just bugs me that you know the the offender is getting rewarded in a way now when i did go through earlier some of the things about halloween i had a few different emotions there i was really sad that we just can't go out and be trusting and know that other people in our community you know will have our well-being at heart that they will you know have fun embracing you know all the costumes that night and you know, make sure that, you know, the kids have a good time. So it makes me sad that as a family, you just can't go out and think that everybody is going to treat you like, you know, they would treat their own children. It just makes me wonder if by the time I have grandchildren, if they'll be able to enjoy going outside and just playing by themselves. When I was a child, I spent so many hours outside by myself without worrying that someone was going to hurt me. But as the numbers continue to increase, you know, there may come a time where, you know, parents are not letting their children outside to play. And they children need that in order to thrive and become creative. So, you know, I'm just angry that, you know, some of these individuals are taking away the joys from families and children. You know, in a fair world, no parent would ever have to bury a child. No little sister should have to identify her sister's killer. And no young life should be brutally snatched away from her community. It has the light that she was trying to shine just snuffed out. And snuffed out in a way that is just purely terrifying. She must have felt so betrayed knowing him and realizing that he was going to hurt her. And I don't know exactly how much she realized was going to happen if she knew at some point that he was going to kill her. And it, I just hope that she was not, not really scared in the last moments, even though I know she most likely was. It's just horrifying that a person could do that to another person much less a child who had absolutely no chance of defending herself, who was so much smaller than him. So in this particular case, I think the fault lies within the judicial system, at least as it was set up at that time. You know, we know what happened to Sarah. We know that he was a repeat offender. So I'm mad at the situation. And I go back and forth about the jury Overall, I'm not truly mad about the jury in um, the case of um, where he slapped a teenager on the bottom and they acquitted him. But without the knowledge that the offender had prior police contact all for the same thing and a conviction for a similar crime, you know, the description of what had actually occurred may have seen been seen in different contexts, you know, but, you know, slapping a teenager's bottom, no matter what the context, really isn't acceptable. You know, having a grown man hanging out on a porch with teenagers, you know, slapping their bottoms all while he should have been at home with his new baby, that, that should never be acceptable. So, you know, again, I'm just kind of hoping the jury thought he was just, you know, being overly joyful. That's the only thing I can think of, but it's it's kind of difficult to read about that and know that he was not convicted, but at the same time, you know, the, the jury didn't know. 
they did not know of his previous conviction. Right, so the sex offender registry, it can be a hot button issue where some argue that it cripples the offender's ability to find a good job or find a residence. Now, you know, where there is a small percentage of cases where this can be argued, um, you know, the vast majority of these offenders do throw do pose a threat to repeat. He committed the crime, so he does have to face the music, or she has to face the music, that they have to follow the rules of the conviction and supervision afterwards. The victim and their family, they don't get a say in it. They have to live with it. The offender should not expect to then have you know, all of his rights completely restored. Because no matter what the crime, whether it's this or any other crime, and someone else is filling out a job application, they have to mark, you know, have you been convicted of a felony as well? So, you know, for most offenders, it does affect their lives when they come out. Um, but, you know, we have to be careful as adults. We have to remain vigilant. And, you know, again, I do get mad that we live in a society where, you know, we can't just trust our neighbor, that we really have to look at them through you know, lenses of, does this person have any secrets? You know, even if they're not on, say, a registry, you know, it's like, do we really know that person? And we have to, you know, be careful of who we trust around our children. Now, something I also do want to emphasize is that assault can happen to both male and females. And the offender can be male or female. Males can also be victims of SA. And everyone needs to feel supported if they're coming forward to report any type of crime, but especially this type of assault. Males are sometimes made to feel like they can't report when they're victims, that they have to stay, using you know, terminology that I've heard before, that they have to stay strong, that, you know, basically that they should not report anything like that. But that's really not the case. Males need just as much support if they've been a victim of SA as anyone else. So we need to kind of expand our focus as well. And I do see it happening more. And unfortunately, it's in terms of, say, teachers or people who work at schools, where come to find out they're having some type of relationship with a teenager at that school. And even if the teenager is 18, it, in most states, if you know, it's a person who works at the school, that person holds a position of power over the victim, and that's still considered illegal in most states. So you know, we have to recognize it's not just happening to only females, it's happening to males. We also have to recognize it's not just males that are the offenders, it can also be a female. So that's just to kind of open our eyes and you know, look at things from everybody that our children may come in contact with. And we need to teach our children as well to recognize when something's not right to come to us. They have to feel comfortable reporting it. And as we saw in a couple of cases um, with Caitlin, it was actually her counselor who saw that something wasn't right. And then in the first case of The Haunted Forest, the parents had read the diary. So, you know, we have to make sure we have that open dialogue with our children. Of course, it's much, much harder when the child is very small. 
because they really don't understand all that is going on. But we just want to create an environment where they feel comfortable going to trusted adults. Now, as far as um, the previous convictions being allowed in court, um, if a jury knows about an offender's previous arrest and convictions, it allows them to put the current case in context. Um, and that way, you know, maybe they will be deterred by the thought of being on the sex offender registry if they know, you know that it's, you know, for lack of any other term, be held against them for the rest of their lives. Um, that you know, judges should be able to make the decision that you know, in certain instances, and that is definitely in cases like these, that those previous convictions should be allowed. Now, for this family, you know, I wish that Christmas was not, you know, just forever marred by this event. You know, for each Christmas going forward, you know, we want families to get up and open presents with their loved ones or have a huge dinner where everybody catches up on things you know, that they may not do necessarily during the year, you know, that there are children who could be Sarah's nieces and nephews and cousins in the future, you know, she could watch them running around outside and playing without fearing the boogeyman. And we all can wish that Sarah was here now. But this family will spend the rest of its holidays wondering what might have been, remembering the fear in the fact that Sarah was not coming home. And we need to make sure that these offenders are punished and kept from hurting another child. And though not a factor in this case, I feel that anyone who has gone through or been impacted by an, by an assault should have access, easy access to counseling or any other type of activity that helps them cope with what they've just been through. Sometimes these concerns are overlooked but they should not be. And even though, you know, in this case, the primary victim was murdered, there's still Emma to think about. And I hope that she's been able to get, you know, any counseling if that's needed for her because she was so young and to see, you know, this happen, to see her sister go, you know, it must be extremely difficult for her. Now, it did say previously that Amy, Sarah's aunt, knew um, that he was an offender. Again, we don't know when that came into play, though. Did she know before or after they started dating? So without knowing, I think we should not judge her aunt too harshly. Um, you know, we know what happened. We can see what this man was like and what he was capable of. Right now, 12 years later, we would probably all go to the offender registry you know, when, as soon as we meet someone to see if they're on it. But this was almost 12 years ago, and a lot changes in 12 years. Yes, people were aware of it, but you know, as time goes by, more and more people become aware of how they can check certain things. They become more educated about um, certain things. And possibly, if Amy had met this man now, she might have gone to the registry and you know, stopped the relationship. But again, we don't know. And so I don't think she should be hard, um, judged too harshly on what happened. Um, 
you know, because we weren't there with the situation. In some of the articles, it did say that she did not want to make a comment, and I can understand why. People do have a tendency to blame the caregiver, even if it's something that the caregiver did not do or it was not their fault. I also wasn't sure exactly where to put this information, but not long after Thomas Legs was sent to prison, another inmate did use some type of homemade weapon and attacked Legs during the lunch meal in the inmate dining hall. Um, he did have injuries to his upper body, his neck, his head, and also his hand, probably from a defense wound, but he was not seriously injured and did not need to go to the hospital. So just a bit of an aside before I do conclude, while researching this legislation related to this case, you know, mainly in Comet, um, I was looking for Sarah's story and at first I thought, oh, well, maybe this made it to the UK because there were a lot of articles mentioning Sarah and the UK. But when I opened some of the articles up, it was actually a different Sarah, a Sarah Payne who lived in the UK who was who was killed under similar circumstances. So, you know, it's another family went through this and every day I'm sure a family is going through something similar. Now, you know, I've, I've said previously, I want to look at things and see possibly why, you know, why some disappearances do not make it to the huge headlines. You know, I want Sarah's story to not be forgotten so that everybody is more aware and, you know, tries to take what we've learned and incorporate it in their lives for their children. Now, at the beginning of part one, I did make an allusion to JonBenet Ramsey um, and how her case held scandal and mystery. You know, she was a child pageant queen that held controversy on its own about whether or not she, you know, should be made up and be in a pageant. Um, she was found in her own home after it was searched. A ransom letter was found, and it was written on the family's own stationery. The family had money, and it was never solved. So it holds a lot of things that can really pull people's in. Sarah's story did not really stir up that national fervor that JonBenet Ramsey's did. Now, I did see that there were some shows where Sarah was mentioned, but you know they just weren't the headlines that we saw, see with, um, with other cases. There have been some podcasts occasionally and some videos in the years since. But outside of Delmarva, you know, I think if you were to go up to someone and ask 100 people who John Benet Ramsey was, they would know. Probably about 80 out of those 100. If not, all of them would know who she was. Now, if you were to ask someone outside of Delmarva who Sarah was, you would be very lucky to get one person, maybe, who knew. I want to be clear that I am in no way saying that John Benet Ramsey's case is not important and that it should not have been covered. But what I am saying is that many, many other children do not get the same coverage as she did.
So why was Sarah's case different? I can only speculate about some things. She didn't have the money that the Ramseys had. She didn't have that air of controversy as far as whether or not she should have been in a child pageant such as John Bonet. I sometimes wonder if people judged her family as well. If they looked at the situation and thought about the aunt dating this man originally, about the mother giving up her children for her sister to take care of. I wonder if people looked at that and did not think it was something that should be made a national story. And if that was the case, shame on them. None of those factors should have made a difference. So, you know, I know that I just saw it in the scope of Delmarva, but there's not this national outcry about what happened to her as compared to other cases. And I think every case where a child is involved, if there's a missing child, that does need to go national because every set of eyes that can possibly help find that child, those eyes are important. So, you know, just, just in case, say, Sarah was still alive and someone took her or any other child out there, why is it that that case did not receive as much attention as another little girl's? It should have, and we need to figure out why. We need to make changes to the way that you know, missing report or missing persons reports are shown in media. I know that when someone's reported missing a number of times, a very, very high percentage, they're found safe, especially if they're adults. But this is a child. She did not run away. There are other children who are put in similar circumstances where they're taken by someone. And we need to have our eyes open for those children. We need to have their stories told. We need to understand what happened so that we know how to better protect our children and what laws and regulations, if any, need to be changed. So maybe as I start to cover more stories, we may see a pattern a little bit more, but it just really breaks my heart that this little girl died at the hands of a man she knew and her story is kind of relegated to anniversary shows where a 10-year anniversary comes up and it's, you know, remembered. But she needs to be remembered all the time. And even as time passes and she specifically may not be remembered by everyone, at least she may still have a legacy in what changes were made in the regulations and laws after she was killed so that hopefully other children will be in a better position. Okay, everyone, I know this has kind of been a really, really long episode. I appreciate everybody hanging in. There just did not seem to be a place where I thought I could cut it off, um, you know, to pick up for a third episode. But again, you know, I'll post everything in the description and I'd really appreciate it if you do get a chance to share the podcast or rate it. 
um, subscribe if you can, because it really does help the podcast grow. And you know, it has something to do with all the algorithms that um, the podcast engines use. So, you know, if you have any cases, whether it's for Danger on Delmarva or Mystifyingly Missing, I will have my um, email in there. I do check my email frequently. Um, actually, right now, I check that a lot less than Facebook. So emails probably would be the um, best way to contact me. And I am working on a couple of cases that may be even a little bit longer. So if you do like longer episodes, those might um, be something you're interested in as, you know, I'm working on those more. Um, it does does just sometimes take me a little while to get them done, um, you know, just because of, you know, of other things within my life. But I want to give each case the, you know, the coverage that it deserves and, make sure that the stories are told appropriately. All right. So thank you everyone again for hanging in and I will talk to you all soon. Bye.